Well, this is just classic North Korea. One, no one really knows what's going on there, and people speculating. You know, it's like they, you know, they think they know what's going on in Kim Jong Un's head. You know, that that that's just foolish. So we really never know. Uh, but when something's going on around the world, you know, they want us not to forget them. So we see this pattern of military activity uh, over the past few weeks, launching missiles and other provocative steps, just to remind us that. They're still there, and, and, and we shouldn't forget about their issues. Uh, and, and, of course, they're doing it in a time when, when people are really you know, overwhelmed, including in this region. Obviously, the U.S. military uh, you know, reports about virus outbreaks on ships in the Pacific. Uh, everyone's attention is diverted, so North Korea uh, has to take this opportunity to remind us that they're still there, and, and they're, they're going to continue to do things like that. Yeah, I can believe it. He might, be, he might not be getting the bang for his buck. He might be wasting his missiles, given it's not making the front pages anymore. Hey, thank you very much to Ross Feingold, our Taipei-based independent political risk consultant and Money Talk regular. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Okay, people, look at the markets today. The ASX 200 is down 2.53% in early trading in uh, in Australia. The Kospi is down and the Nikkei is down. So it's not looking so great out there. Uh, the weather's not looking so great. Cloudy with one or two rain patches, but the maximum temperature is 22 degrees. So the Canadians, we like it cold. So I'm digging this cool weather for this time of year. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Andrew Work for Money Talk. We will see you back tomorrow. It's 8.31, and Samantha Butler has the half-hour news. A former government authority, uh, sorry, a former hospital authority official says beauty parlours should close for 14 days to curb the spread of the coronavirus. The government extended its closure order of entertainment venues yesterday to also include karaoke bars, nightclubs and mahjong parlours. Clubhouses, beauty and massage parlours were exempt. But Dr Derek Au says with the recent surge in overseas arrivals, it was a critical time to ensure no local outbreaks of COVID-19. With the recent surge of people coming back from overseas, with all the imported cases rising quite rapidly, we are also beginning to see a number of community cases and even clusters of outbreaks. So right now is a sort of critical time for Hong Kong to make sure that the local chains of infection do not become uncontrolled. The U.S. Navy has begun evacuating the crew of an aircraft carrier docked in Guam after its captain warned a coronavirus outbreak on board was threatening their lives. The acting Navy Secretary Thomas Maudley said about 1,000 personnel had been taken off the USS Theodore Roosevelt and quarantined. Our highest obligation as leaders is to ensure the safety and readiness of every sailor and Marine on the watch as well as their families back home so that they can do their mission. That's why we're taking every precaution to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the fleet. I know you've all been following the situation on the USS Teddy Roosevelt very closely, as have we. Others will be evacuated in the coming days. There were 4,000 crew on board. Britain has recorded its worst one-day figure for coronavirus-related deaths, 563, a rise of nearly a third. The government is facing increasing pressure over its handling of the outbreak amid criticism over shortages of protective equipment for frontline health workers and delays in testing. Several unions have issued a statement calling the lack of protective gear a crisis within a crisis. A senior National Health Service official, Chris Hobson, said there was a lack of the swabs and chemicals that NHS Health Trust's needed for the tests. 
I was talking to a trust this morning that can only test three members of staff a day because that's the number of swabs that they've got. I was talking to one of the largest trusts in the country who basically wants to test many, many hundreds of their staff, but they actually can't because they've got a reagent shortage. Trusts will go as fast as they can, but unless we can solve those shortages, then there will be a natural limit to how many tests we can do. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today is Jim Gould. Jim, good morning to you. Good morning. Are we in danger of running out of food? You might have noticed a few items are, again, in short supply on local supermarket shelves, like flour for one. Well, toilet paper came, uh, or went and came back. So is the food squeeze a temporary issue or a foretaste of longer-term, longer-lasting problems? In many places, food hoarding and export controls have stoked anxiety over food security and global food supply under COVID-19. And as the global travel ban slows aviation and marine transport and quarantine measures around the world called manpower problems in food production and processing... Are the worries justified? What can we do now and in the future to make food more secure? Let us know your thoughts, your questions and comments. You can leave a message on our Facebook page. That's Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, with your thoughts, your questions and comments. Or you can give us a call, and our telephone number is 233-88266. That's 233-88266. And after 9.20, we're going to be talking about how and whether the government should be helping Hong Kong travellers stranded overseas. I think we're going to start with a few uh, emails, Hugh, this morning. Uh, so uh, this one is from Mr Pink, who writes, uh, The SCMP reports that a mid-sized county in China's Henan province has been placed in total lockdown as authorities try to fend off a second coronavirus wave. According to the article, curfew-like measures came into effect on Tuesday in Jia County, near the city of Pingdingshan, with the area's 600,000 residents told to stay home. According to a notice on the country's official microblog account, I have attached the SEMP article for your reference. Uh, assuming that this story is accurate, it raises renewed concerns that China acted prematurely in reopening its factories a few weeks ago. It should also prompt the Hong Kong government to consider imposing a blanket ban on all arrivals from China, which, together with Macau and Taiwan, currently enjoys an exemption from this ban. Given the recent spike in Hong Kong cases and the resultant looming hospital capacity constraints, Carrie Lam's administration must act immediately to remove this potential new threat of imported cases from China. That from Mr Pink. Uh, thanks. And this is uh, an email from Catherine, uh, who says, uh, Dear Backchat, thank you for keeping us all up to date through the COVID-19. Uh, the programme on domestic helpers here was interesting. I uh, could not believe the attitude of your guest. The way he referred to our domestic helpers was like third-class citizens, giving them no credit for any mind of their own. The Filipinas, I know, are all well informed and take great care. I saw only small groups last Sunday around usual gathering areas and feel that all domestic helpers are entitled, like we are, to walk around and carry out their own personal business with the liberty all other Hong Kongers are enjoying. 
to date. Uh, from that programme, I learnt that uh, Hong Kong Post had curtailed more overseas mail services and went to the GPO to inquire about this and a mail item I had posted on the 17th of March via tracked registered mail. I've been tracking it and been surprised to see it still noted as being in Hong Kong, but stupidly thought that maybe that meant it was in transit. No, it's still languishing in the mail centre awaiting a flight. Speedpost is taking priority, but uh, in event this service is very delayed. So my question is, who does Hong Kong Post partner with to transfer airmail items to Europe? And how are they deciding which items to send on the very few flights out? Press releases only tell us of the service status and countries that now have no postal service to them. Could Backchat devote a small section of a programme to postal services? That comes from Catherine. Uh, yeah, we will do what we can. We'll approach the uh, post office and see if we can get someone to uh, talk about the, uh, the, the situation uh, at the moment. The focus uh, for the next uh, 45 minutes or so uh, is on uh, food. Uh, we're going to be talking to a meat importer and uh, uh, an expert in uh, for global food and resources from Australia later in the programme. Uh, but we're joined for the first part, uh, before nine o'clock, by uh, Daisy Tam, professor at the Baptist University, uh, and uh, who's uh, her special interest in food security. Uh, Daisy Tam, good morning. Morning. So, yes, your interest, your special area of uh, research and expertise is global food security. So what effect are we seeing now from the pandemic? I think it's a really good time to be talking about food security. Um, but let me just explain a little bit about what food security is, because I think a lot of people confuse it with food safety. Food safety is part of food security. I think um, safety is something that we are much more familiar with, uh, with the amount of pesticides and the chemicals that go into our food um, and therefore affect our health. But food security is is larger than that. Um, food security looks at three things, availability, access and use. So availability is having a steady supply of food um, in, in, in our environment, whether it's in the city or in the country. Access is about having physical and financial access of the individual to access that food. And use is whether or not we have the capacity to cook and the knowledge to cook with, uh, with the food that we, that we acquire. So as you can see, it's really much more about the food system. And what we have uh, observed during this pandemic is that our food system is quite vulnerable in quite a few places. The first is not so much a question of availability. So it's not that we don't have enough food being produced. Similar to situation in the world where we do produce enough food to feed the world three times round, but people are still suffering from hunger. Um, what we are seeing is that people are suffering from hunger because they can't access it, right? I think the situation in Hong Kong um, is not so much about not having enough food, but it's about panic buying. Um, and that, I think, has to be, again, broken down into different ways of looking at it. Mm. So for me, I think panic buying, no system can really withstand such a huge and significant increase in such a short period of time of demand. Right. But um, what it indicates is that we are very much reliant on a food system that is over 95% dependent on imports, mm -hmm. right? So there are many bottlenecks here. Mm. Uh, when it's not about production, then it's about the supply chain. 
Right. It's about logistics. Right. Are, are the supply chains secure? I mean, we, we were hearing just now in our Money Talk program that, uh, that the global logistics have been uh, disrupted by the pandemic. You know, there are there are goods piling up in in docks and on ships being unable to unload and and that kind of thing. I mean, is that having an effect uh, on the on the supply of food into Hong Kong? As you say, more than ninety five percent comes from outside. We're we're reliant on imports. We're heavily dependent on imports, that's true. And the logistic chain is very much part of the global food system. I think it's not just Hong Kong, um, but our whole food system is dependent on, um, yes, a, a, a circulation of, of goods and resources, um, raw materials being sent to processing plants, to manufacturers, and then to retailers. The fact that logistics is being, it's like a traffic jam, you know, there are there are bottlenecks. Um, and yes, it will it will have a certain uh, amount of effect on our on 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 our on our food coming in, but at the same time, it is not something that I feel um, is is that uh, crazy. Okay, so so if all being well, uh, we have uh, adequate supplies of food then, as you say, there, there's a problem with panic buying, creating shortages. I mean, cert certain items are, uh, have been in short supply. Um, I, I was hearing the other day, uh, our producer uh, Noreen was talking to our food reporter, Andrew Dambina, and neither, neither of them could find any flour in the supermarket. I think that's all over the world, actually. Right, I was right. I was Googling that, and I think I've seen reports in New Zealand and UK and the US uh, that uh, flour is, uh, and I think Kazakhstan, who's a, which is a big source apparently of flour, they've st they've stopped e exporting it. Um, uh, I, I was wondering, um, you, you know, you say ninety five percent of our food comes from from outside Hong Kong. Where 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 what are the main sources? Is it mostly China? Most of the food comes from China. Yes. <laughs> the simple answer is yeah. yes. Um, but I think it is much more than just uh, China. I think there are examples whereby you have, for example, um, I was reading about how tomatoes grown in Mexico are sent to China to be processed before sending back to the US to be sold. And this is the nature of our global food system, is that we we, we outsource and we um, depend on economies of scale so that it, when it makes economic sense, it doesn't make normal logic sense to us, right? And I think we see this a lot in our food system. Um, in Hong Kong, I would say that because we are so dependent on imports, um, we are exposing ourselves to a lot of these forces that we are not in control of. Uh, fluctuations in prices, disruptions in the logistics chain, um, disruptions in global supply in the long run because of climate change. All this will have an effect and we will feel the brunt of it fairly quickly. I think this pandemic and what, what we have observed is something that, for me, it shows that we have very little buffer, right? The moment something happens, we feel it immediately. And this has happened before and not just because of the SARS or pandemic, but when there is a sudden drop in temperature, when it, we had a very cold winter, or when um, something happens, we immediately you see the prices go up, and it stays up for months on end. This tells us that we need to be more prepared and more resilient as a system. I think panic buying is something 
else that we can we can deal with and it has to do with disinformation for example um, about people not quite understanding how um, oh, 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 disinformation I mean I, I, I can't blame uh, individuals for panic buying but at the same time 10 kilos of rice can last a single person for three months um, and I think the psychology behind panic buying is understandable because you want to be prepared. You want to also provision for yourself and your loved ones. So this is something that we, I think, requires another another um, approach to handle. But in terms of system and in terms of resilience and and risk preparedness, I think there's a lot more we can do. Or is there resilience in having a network, in having lots of sources? Uh, does that mean you don't get the traffic jam because you've got lots of roads and you can always take another shortcut and you can always get your food from somewhere else? And, um, you know, sometimes networks are more resilient. Correct. So diversifying is always one of the ways in which we could alleviate that risk, right? So we, we, we break down those bottlenecks. We look at what the, the, the vulnerabilities are and we try and alleviate that. Diversifying is one, investing in... Research and development is another. For example, Hong Kong loves <laughs> to compare itself with Singapore. Singapore is has put it on a target. Um, by 2030, they're going to be 30% food uh, sufficient, self-sufficient. Really? Yes, Singapore. Singapore. But they're tiny, aren't they? they How are will they do that? Tiny. They're absolutely tiny, and they have. But surprisingly, even though they are so much smaller than Hong Kong and have a lot less agricultural lands. They produce seven percent of the vegetables that they eat. Hong Kong is at one point seven percent, right? So it tells you what a nation can do when they put their mind to it, when they put food security on the agenda. So they do it by a, a, um, a, a mixture of methods. So they have diversified their imports. Um, they have invested in research and development. They have collaborated in partnership and secured a piece of land in China to produce food for them. Um, they have used technology to boost their local agriculture. So they use, they have a lot of vertical farming. Or something, yeah. Yes, that, that, that sort. So uh, vertical farming, vertical fishing, all sorts of tech that go into it. So their self-sufficiency rates are much higher than Hong Kong. Because we do actually have quite a lot of agricultural land here, don't we? But it's not used. <laughs> we have about 4,000 hectares and about 80% of that is fallow. And that mm. has to do with the land policy in Hong Kong mm. and the mm. agricultural policy. Mm. So I think with agriculture, for so long we've been thinking about urbanization and progress um, in the way that it's all about leaving agriculture behind, moving into the um, you know, first manufacture, industrialization, and then after that, the service economy, the knowledge economy, the gig economy, and not once did we think about uh, agriculture. But so I think now is a good time. Yeah, so, so you would say that's what we need. We need to think about uh, returning to agriculture, or, or at least making it a, you know, a, a bigger part of our activities, our e economic, commercial activities. Yes, mm. um, I. <laughs> 
I don't think it's returned to because it's not in the same way as we understood farming to be very manual, uh, hard work and, 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 and all this. I mean, this is something that our parents tell us that if you don't study well, then you'll end up being a farmer. That's, I mean, it's not that kind. There, there are lots of other ways in which I think agriculture could be imagined in more, um, in, in more futuristic terms, you know, much more sustainable, um, much more addressing what the current population needs, like both in terms of health and in terms of food security. There's a couple of mentions on our, on our Facebook page uh, about this. Uh, Adelaide says, uh, we could consider to grow our own vegetables now and in the future to make uh, our food sources more stable. And uh, Tom says, and uh, this is at uh, some level ironic, Tom says uh, Hong Kong should be more self-reliant for food. We should remove the PLA from the Sekong airfield and use the land to grow yellow economy green vegetables. I'm confident that will feed the 7 million people of Hong Kong. Well, if the rest of the world shuts down, it's obvious where the food supply is at the end of the East Rail Line. Uh, that is uh, Tom's uh, take. Um, uh, I, 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 I think Tom is... <laughs> is, is um, sort of uh, getting at the fact that um, there's no real point in us being trying to be self-sufficient in Hong Kong. We're, we're really completely reliant on China. Uh, if we're talking about food security, we should be talking about relations with, with the mainland. Do you, do you agree with that? Mm. <laughs> this drag is a tricky you into one. the politics of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, in food studies, there's a lot of people who talk about food sovereignty. Um, the idea is that we should have a say and active participation in where our food comes from, how it is grown. And that's not necessarily just political. It can be economical, um, sociological. The point about agriculture and reviving agriculture we do have the land. As I said, we do have 4,000 hectares of land. 80% is fallow. So I think that 80% could be used, could be put to better use. Right? That's number one. That would be a longer-term development, of course, but uh, but in the short term, at the moment, with the with the, with the global pandemic, uh, uh, the global crisis that's going on, um, the fact that, um, that, that China is pretty much self-sufficient in, in things like rice and wheat. Uh, is that it, should that, is it, well, it, first of all, is that true? And secondly, would that be a, a source of reassurance for us here in Hong Kong? Well, um, well I'm not sure that China is self-sufficient in terms of rice and wheat anymore. They used to be, but I think they are also currently importing. Mm -hmm. Rice consumption has gone down per capita, both in Hong Kong and in China, as we can probably imagine that we are eating less rice and more diverse diet. Um, countries have rice reserves, some countries do, um, and that could take the form of storage, which is one of the ways in which you meet risks uh, and prepare for risk. You store, right, stockpiling. So you have grain silos in the fields of the United States, for example. Um, but in Hong Kong, we have a reserve of 15 days, and that is not in the form of a big warehouse. It is, is it not? Um, not that I know of. I think this is more an agreement with industry partners to say that you need to have a 15-day, 1-5, 15-day of reserve. Singapore's... Um, rice reserve is three months, right? Mm. So I think in terms of preparing 
and and preparing for a crisis is is definitely uh, very different. With the logistics that you mentioned, I think it's much more of a distributed system all along the supply chain that everyone has a certain amount of reserve. Yeah, uh, most of our rice here is imported from uh, Vietnam and Thailand. Is that correct? Yes. That's is, is, is there any 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 sort of possible threat uh, to that supply chain? We need to diversify. Quite simply, I think with if not a virus, um, with climate change, with increased flooding, uh, for threat of flooding or drought and all this, ultimately that will affect um, food supply. Locusts, uh, the the plague of locusts oh, that yeah. is hitting India and Pakistan at the mm. moment, um, that is going to cause a dip. But with everything else working um, normally, then you can see on a global level, the global supply chain will be able to adapt to these to these fluctuations. Right. Will, will it, in the end, uh, be a matter of the richest getting the food? And so, we'll, we'll, in the end, will we be okay because we're a kind of rich place? But if you're in India, it's going to be tough. That is unfortunately the the state of the world we mm. live in. Um, so, I think another another element to food security is 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 rated at how much percentage of your household income goes towards buying food. And on average, in Hong Kong, we are doing okay. We are we are spending twenty um, something percent of our household income. But this is average, right? So we know that we also have one of the highest Gini indexes. Um, in, in developed economies. And when we look at the lower 20 percentile, um, they spend almost 46% of their household income on buying and provisioning for food. And that is not, that is, that is, that is, that is not secure. That is not a, um, a secure way of, of living. And so because I work um, quite closely also with uh, food rescue uh, charities and organizations, um, and just yesterday, I was out on the streets um, trying to distribute some of the surplus food just to step in. You see that really on the ground at the moment, the people who take the brunt of crisis the most are often the most vulnerable. So in, to return to your question, yes, the rich will always have more resources to give themselves that buffer that they need to live for as long as they need. But ultimately, at some point, money is not going to solve everything, even with money at some point. And even within our own society, even with, even within Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So who are those people who, who, who you were distributing food to that you think are missing out? The homeless, okay. mm. the low income, the working poor, the elderly. 20% um, of our population um, are poor. So, you know, what social infrastructure do they have to rely on? So I think that's also something interesting, I think, that you mentioned earlier in the program, is that what are the community resources that we can build up? Because it's not only just asking the government. We, it's not a centralized response that we need. I think we need to look at a much more decentralized um, way of thinking about uh, uh, risk preparedness, right? So in every district, what can we do? In every community, what can we do? What is it that we need? Where could be, where could there be a central point where we can come together and say, um, okay, this is, this is what we can do as a community. This is what we need as a community, rather than every man for, it, their, uh, for himself, right? 
So I think there are different ways of approaching this. Do you, do you think this is also goes into and overlaps with the issue of, of usage? So what we eat, uh, do you think that might change, perhaps should change, if we want to have a more secure food sources? And also what we don't eat, the waste that you, that you mentioned. So this is, this is also a very important point. Um, rich cities and uh, a richer population consume double the resources of people living in rural areas. So our diets are, um, are very resource heavy. We eat a lot of meat, we eat up the food chain, and that's not something that is sustainable in the long run. Um, I think the, the, uh, the statistics is something like we cities occupy maybe two or three percent of the world, but we use up 75 percent of the natural resources. So definitely reducing, um, not reducing our diet, but eating down the food chain, more plant based diet is something that is more sustainable. And of course, uh, reducing waste. If we are producing enough food to feed the world, why are people still suffering from hunger and why are we wasting those resources? Okay, well, we're going to uh, just comment from Mo uh, in an email who says, a Hong Kong government just closed all the local farmers markets in Hong Kong, but the wet markets are open because of COVID-19. Uh, how can Hong Kong government uh, promote local farming this way? They didn't want to stop it, it seems like. That's uh, Mo's take. Uh, we're going to continue with the topic in, in a couple of minutes after the uh, news at uh, nine. Once again, if you want to comment, uh, please give us a call, 233-88266 or email backchat at rthk.hk or join the conversation on on our Facebook page, that's Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. Um, on other issues uh, that are in the news at the moment, uh, John says, uh, if passengers are tested negative before they board, why are so many testing positive when they arrive, uh, asks John. That's referring to the recent increase in, in numbers, I think. And uh, Alonzo says, on the issue of uh, massage parlours and beauty salons and, and so on, Alonso says, why on earth did the government decide to exclude beauty salons and in particular massage parlours from the list of establishments that should be closed? Anyone who's been to a foot or body massage parlour in Hong Kong can tell you how crowded they can get. In a nutshell, many of them, particularly those with communal jacuzzis and sauna rooms, are perfect breeding grounds for a future COVID-19 cluster outbreak. Close them now. That comes uh, from Alonzo. Once again, if you want to comment, uh, please email backchat at rthk.hk and we'll do our best to read out your comments. Going to return to the issue of uh, food safety with a, a food importer uh, and uh, an academic on uh, global food and uh, resources from Australia after the news at nine. We're also going to be talking about the issue of uh, travellers uh, overseas. Um, should they be uh, uh, returning to Hong Kong? Uh, with uh, facilities provided by the administration or should they be doing it under their own steam uh, or should they just be uh, travelling, uh, as I say, uh, uh, their own way? Uh, let us know your thoughts and your take on that. The weather, cloudy with a couple of rain patches. Temperatures today up to 22 degrees. Yeah, look, cloudy and windy in the next couple of days. 20 degrees now and the humidity is at 81%. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Jim Gould and me, Hugh Chiverton, continuing to talk now about uh, food safety issues and uh, COVID-19. Later, we're going to be talking about uh, travel issues uh, with uh, Professor... Uh, from the School of Hotel and Tourism Management at the Polytechnic University, the issue of uh, whether the Hong Kong government and how much the Hong Kong government should be helping travellers who are stranded overseas. If you want to comment on that or anything to do with uh, food supply, food safety, food security, 
uh, please email back to rthk.hk or even better give us a call on our telephone number it's 233-88266 we'd love to hear from you of course you can also comment on our Facebook page Bank Chat and RTHK Radio 3 and share your thoughts there we're talking in the first part of the programme uh, this morning to a professor at uh, the Baptist University, Daisy Tam, uh, about uh, food security. We're also joined now by Joel Haggard, the Senior Vice President Asia-Pacific, the US Meat Export Federation, and Professor Wendy Umberger, the Executive Director of the Centre for Global Food and Resources at the University of Adelaide. Once again, backchat.rthk.hk is our email address. Uh, Mr. Haggard, maybe we'll start with you. Good morning. Thanks for, for joining morning. us today. Uh, so, uh, how's business? Well, business is, uh, given what's uh, happening in the rest of the world, business is surprisingly normal. Um, normal being in terms of uh, meat exports. Um, the records uh, so far this year, and, you know, statistics always are lagged by uh, a week or two, but uh, uh, exports are holding. Um, supply chains uh, are holding. Um, demand uh, throughout Asia is holding, although we expect that to um, uh, kind of be reduced in the future because of the, the shutdown of restaurants. But it's uh, the supply chain is held much better uh, up than, than one might imagine during this pandemic. Interesting you say uh, uh, demand may go down because of restaurants uh, being closed, but of course uh, supermarket sales are up about, were up about 12% in February. Uh, is, is that not going to balance it up somewhat? Yeah, overall we think uh, it, depends on the, it depends on what meat species you're talking about. So uh, I think it's very similar, uh, very, very similar around the world. The, the people that go out to restaurants to eat beef, whether... In its, uh, whether it's in the United States for hamburgers or uh, in Asia for hot pot or Korean barbecue, uh, yes, that, that, that's likely declining. And, and what they're eating at home uh, would be, uh, especially in Asia, probably more pork and chicken. Mm. So the beef, uh, beef demand is probably going to fall sharper than uh, that for uh, pork and poultry. But overall, we think that the decline in the food service demand will not be made up entirely by the increase in retail on a volume basis. Do people talk about any problems with the with the meat production in, in the United States? How's that going? Are the, the farms and the processing plants, are they still operating normally? Uh, they are, but that's the, that's the critical control point at this, uh, this stage in this uh, outbreak. Um, like, like in other countries around the world, there have been incidences of um, employees that have tested positive, but um, the protocols, which are governed by the states uh, with guidance from CDC and other federal agencies, is that that employee be um, you know, sent, uh, sent, sent away for treatment or, or sent home, and then his uh, co-workers, close co-workers, be uh, tested and isolated, but for operations to remain normal. And that's been the case. And if there were shutdowns, as there are, you know, in some cities and some areas, uh, would would food production would that be considered an essential service? Would they be allowed to continue? Yeah, food and agriculture is one of the sixteen uh, sectors in the United States designated by the Department of Homeland Security as being being critical infrastructure. Um, that notice was put out on March nineteenth, so um, those workers are expected to show up at work. Uh, over the last week, the big, uh, you know, the big effort right now is trying to get 
from uh, PPE to all the workers that are that are working in plants in, in close quarters. So that's uh, you know that's the challenge. But uh, there's a national effort right now to make sure that those workers, because they're designated as critical infrastructure workers, do get those uh, that equipment um, and, and in a priority manner. I know your meat, not vegetables, uh, but uh, I have been reading about in, in other places like in, in Europe uh, concerns about um, just getting the pickers, for example, or, you know, people to do the harvesting, people to do the kind of uh, basic work, uh, you know, because there are, the people aren't moving around in the same way and, and, and people are not available. Uh, it, it, has that come up, do you know, in, in American agriculture? Uh, yeah, yeah. There is a concern about seasonal workers because there, there, there's visas issued for seasonal workers, and given uh, border closures and, and restrictions, um, that's been an issue. And the other issue, of course, is we see some countries starting to put export bans in place. They're worried about their own uh, feeding their own people. We see uh, see some measures being taken by Vietnam, Kazakhstan, but. Um, uh, by the major countries, major ex- food exporting countries, we haven't seen um, anything critical at this point. And what about um, food imports? I mean, we were talking before about uh, Hong Kong being obviously heavily reliant on food imports, uh, more than 95% of our food uh, coming in from outside. Um, um, do you know uh, uh, how is uh, Hong Kong doing in terms of uh, um, you know, the, the food supplies? Um, uh, any any you, do you know of any problems or any any delays or holdups or anything like that? Yeah, the the, the, the main the main um, challenge right now that we're finding is with products that are air freighted. Um, but there is such a small volume of Hong Kong's food that comes in by air that it it, it shouldn't lead to shortages. It may it may result in higher prices for certain air flown items. Uh, Fruits, you know, fruits from South Africa or berries from uh, South America um, could be some meat from Australia because a lot of those air air shipments uh, come uh, come on uh, commercial flights. So it'll be a matter of cost. Um, but on the meat side, uh, what's interesting is, is that most of the products come in by ocean and frozen. So there hasn't been that much of a there hasn't been that much of a change in terms of um, um, volumes from what we see. What, one pretty amazing um, uh, statistic that, that we saw since the beginning of the year was the almost complete stability of exports of live hogs from China into Hong Kong. Uh, from January through now, uh, they were just very steady every day. So there's a country that was really smacked by uh, complete lockdowns and the virus, but was managed to maintain its supply chain of live hogs in Hong Kong. Mm. Mm. The yeah, pigs got through. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Professor Umberger, good morning to you. Thank you very much Morning. indeed for, for, for joining us. Um, so um, t- tell us your view, first of all, of the, of the global situation now. The picture we were kind of getting, it seems, is that things are okay, but there may be question marks about the, about the longer-term uh, future and uh, food security, uh, you know, if this stretches into, into months. Um, yeah, how do you see, first of all, the global situation? Yeah, so I think Joel hit some really good um, points there. So my two concerns as an economist and from what we're kind of seeing happening here and, and we work in, in kind of Southeast Asia um, is the 
labor issues and then around the movements of food. So if we look at kind of the, the food crisis that happened in 2007, 2008, 2009, you know, which was a pretty major issue across the globe, um, a lot of the cause of that was due to export restrictions and also we already had high commodity prices due to droughts. I think we're lucky now that commodity prices are very low. Um, but what what we don't know, you know, we don't know enough about what countries are going to do um, with respect to restricting exports and, and stockpiling. And I think um, I think Joel mentioned some of those concerns. I know in Australia, um, you know, we're a major exporter here of food. Um, between sixty and seventy percent of most of our our food is exported, um, meat and horticulture and certainly grain. And the industry, the food industry here has been really concerned when we stopped air freight, um, our, our commercial airlines. We did have high value, um, uh, you know, high value food products, particularly seafood and meat that weren't being able to get, to get out the door and, and get to our, um, high-value Asian markets, Hong Kong being one of them, obviously. And now our government just announced that they're going to support getting air freight moving again. You know, even though we're not moving people, we're going to get movement again of, of those high-value egg products. So our industry is really happy to hear, hear that. But with respect to kind of broader food security issues, um, my big concerns are around, you know, what governments will do with respect to their export policies. The other concern I have is around labor, and, and I know Joel mentioned some things about seasonal harvest, but, um, I, you know, migrant workers, seasonal workers, um, in Australia we do have um, workers that come from overseas, um, even backpackers, and obviously we won't have, have those workers anytime soon, and, and getting, you know, particularly um, perishable products harvested in time is potentially going to be an issue. But the other concern is, you know, if this affects um, domestic workforce in countries, if people do get ill and it spreads, that could potentially um, stop movements or, or affect supplies as well. I'm, I'm probably optimistic, but I think in the next the next four to, four to eight weeks, you know, what governments do with policies is really going to be what determines how you know, determines food security. And what about the, the lockdowns that we're seeing, uh, particularly in Europe and places like uh, Italy, Spain, France? Um, is that not going to affect uh, exports of uh, produce from those countries? Well, as far as I'm aware, in most countries, um, you know, people working in the food industry are considered to be critical workers. So, like, you know, if we go into lockdown in Australia, we're not quite there yet. Um, we don't have complete lockdown here. I know that critical services, essential services, so anything to do with our food supply chain, workers would still be, um, people would still be allowed to go work in those industries. Something interesting we're seeing here is, for example, our major air, domestic airline, Qantas, um, has had major layoffs. Um, and basically, Qantas and our major food retailers, Woolworths, um, Coles and even Aldi have been working together to bring some of those workers into the food retail sector because there's massive demand um, in terms of food retailing to get to work in warehouses, to work in logistics, 
and people with chronic health skills. So my understanding is that people in essential services and the food industry in most places is considered essential would still be allowed to, you know, workers would still be allowed to work. Uh, do you know where all the flour has gone? Why is it that uh, in places all over the world, uh, people don't seem to be able to buy flour? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, so that's um, it's the same, same thing here. And funny enough, um, I just got asked by a friend if we have any extra flour at our house. It's really a, a short-run demand issue. So basically, you know, we've had hoarding issues across the globe, um, panic buying, and so people have gone, you know, bought flour, bought staples, and the, basically the movement of that, they've simply not been able to um, get it out of wholesale into retail fast enough. That, that's really the issue. So there's plenty of flour. Um, it's just not getting moved quickly enough to deal with that demand. So demand has exceed, exceeded supply. It's not a supply issue um, other than it's just not getting into the into the um, supermarkets fast and, and could that be because you know, people are all around the world really being encouraged to stay home and not go out, not go to restaurants and so like, like flowers is an item that you would want at home to do your own baking and your own cooking and what have you Yeah, so I think, I think it's probably people you know, thinking longer run if I'm going to be stuck at home and I want to be able to have that flour there to do to bake things on my own. If, for example, I can't go out and buy bread, um, you know, if the bread the bread shop shut down or the supermarket's out of bread, then I can make it at home. Um, and any staple, you know, we've had big issues with rice, with noodles and pasta. Those have been stocked out, you know, in addition to toilet paper. And I think that's what we're seeing in other countries. Um, I know that uh, I have family in the U.S. I'm obviously from there originally. You can tell by my accent. And uh, my family lives in, the, in South Dakota, and they haven't been able to get pasta there for pasta, and um, their flour has also been stocked out at the supermarket. So it, it's really a distribution problem, and and they just can't get it can't get it into the supermarket fast enough. It, part of it is people think. You know, it, it's partially rational, but maybe I, I reckon people have stockpiled now in some households of flour that they're not probably going to use up any time in the next five years. So it's <laughs> been some irrational stockpiling behavior. Mm-hmm. Professor Tam, what, what do you make of this? Uh, what do you make of that, uh, of that behavior? And do you think people's attitudes towards food security are going to change? <laughs> There's going to be more preppers out there. You think so, yeah. Because <laughs> they were right. I think, yeah, I mean, I do think that, um, I mean, Wendy's point about distribution is true. So we don't, it's not a supply problem, it's a distribution problem. It's about refilling the, the restocking the shelves. Um, and I do think that in in, in cases where there is a, a, a panic, um, retail is our access point to food. So making sure that these are available, like, you know, in Hong Kong, it's it's about wet markets, it's about supermarkets, and it's also about the prices being able to to maintain a certain level and not just bump up the price tenfolds just because the um, the supply uh, the uh, the demand is high. I think these on, on a on a consumer level, it's extremely important. Um, 
not selling choy sum for a hundred dollars, uh, I think that is something that I think we need we need to address as well. Uh, Joel Haggard, what's what's your take on what's happening with food in the in the U.S.? Um, is is it an issue? Are people worried about the uh, food supplies? Well, yeah. I mean, you had the you had the CDC issue that kind of note out there. I don't know if that was perhaps the right thing to do to, to alarm people. They said, you know, perhaps people should think about um, stocking up on 14 days supply. So what happened with retail meat sales, they went up 100% during, uh, during March, uh, very sharp uh, spike up in prices. That's starting to abate now. Um, as uh, the other speaker said, as people have their freezers full, and uh, you know, then now they're starting to work off their their stocks. Um, but there's plenty of supply out there. It's really a question of the change in behavior and the change in location of eating. Um, there's an example out there where, if you think about 300,000 plus university students eating a million meals a day in the university, all of a sudden they're eating from home. So that involves a, a whole changes in do food deliveries to supermarkets rather than schools. Uh, it's different companies that do food service business rather than retail business. So it's that kind of a, a sudden abrupt shift in the supply chain that's kind of uh, resulted in the empty shelves. But um, we see prices in the United States, at least of meat, starting to go back down. So uh, uh, we think it's normalizing, well, at least temporarily. But that's what we're seeing just in the last couple of days. Professor Berger, do you see any kind of long-term changes to the to the way people approach food security, governments and individuals? Um, I think probably not long-term. I think this mm. is this is probably something that's a shock, um, and probably whether or not there's a long-term effect will depend on how how long this lasts. If it's you know over six months, then I think behavior will, will change longer term. But I think right now it's more of a shock. And, you know, I fully expect that, that things are going to be disrupted for six months, but hopefully we start to see, start to see some countries return to normal, more normal work patterns um, after six months. Maybe I'm unrealistic. But, no, I think, I think it's a shock, and, and in longer run people will return to normal behavior. So, You're so, always going to have panic be panic buyers, you know, the same people that are panic buying toilet paper and probably have stockpiles at home are the same people buying the, the flour and rice in mass quantities. But do you, do you think the, the global pandemic crisis uh, like this may encourage uh, various countries to think more about, uh, about food security and being more self-sufficient and, and having to rely less on imports? Yeah, so we certainly saw that after the, you know, 2007-2008. We, we've seen countries like Indonesia really focus on domestic food security and invest more in in trying to become food secure um so yeah i i do think that that it will we will see policy um change in certain countries 
Okay. Well, Professor Umberger, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Wendy Umberger there, Executive Director of the Centre for Global Food and Resources at the University of Adelaide. Many thanks to uh, Joel Haggard, Senior Vice President, Asia-Pacific for the U.S. Meat Export uh, Federation, and to Professor Daisy Tam from uh, Hong Kong Food Works, a very interesting website, which I recommend you, you check out, Hong Kong Food Works, also a professor at the uh, Baptist University, and an email from Jem T, who says, many, many thanks for featuring food security expert Professor Daisy Tam. Keep up the good work. That comes uh, from Jem. Thank you very much indeed. Quick email from S, uh, who says, we are talking about the sports coaches needing financial help. At the same time, there are dance teachers operating independently whose business has been affected, and the government should help them uh, as well. That observation from S. Thank you very much indeed. Finally, today, uh, between now and, ni- and 9.30, we wanted to turn uh, to the issue of uh, travel. Uh, some uh, 80 people... Uh, will be taken home on a flight arranged by the Hong Kong uh, SAR government uh, from Peru uh, tomorrow. Um, uh, there's some being cons- some controversy over the the arrangements. The 80 will have to pay about $30,000 in addition to the uh, cost of the air ticket from London to Hong Kong. Uh, those stranded in, in Cusco, as many of them are, you also need to pay an extra $6,000 for the trip to Lima, where the flight will leave. Marcus Schuchert joins us now, Associate Professor in the School of Hotel and Tourism Management at the Polytechnic University. Professor Schuchert, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks morning. so much indeed for, for joining us. Um, so, Thank you for having me. Uh, so, like, these, these travellers, because, uh, to be honest, you know, quite, quite a lot of people have, have been saying, uh, why are we helping out these people, these travellers? They should be, you know, there under their own steam, taking their own risks. What, what's your thought on it? Well, I think um, I think the most important is that everyone who is abroad can return safely and sound um, home, right and healthy. I think in, in those extraordinary times, that's the most important. Well, in terms of the operations, you are making you're making very um, a very interesting point. I just looked it up this morning, right? So um, yeah, I had a look on the International Civil Aviation Organization's website. So Peruvian airspace is closed for scheduled, non-scheduled, and general aviation. So if you if you translate this into the cost of coming home of a country which is basically locked down, this this is tremendous, right? Just think about in the at the moment, basically there are curfews in most countries. And there is no ground transportation, right? So you cannot uh, ride bus, taxis, or anything else, trains. Um, closed airports, closed hubs. So if you think about what did Emirates and, and Singapore Airlines, so they closed completely down. So the, the, um, the air traffic, the capacity at the moment is um, back um, 60, 80% of normal. So literally, you, you almost cannot go out. Um, and I don't want to mention the closed borders. I don't want to mention all these cancelled flights. So this is a this is a tremendous operation, right? So what can you what can you do in those circumstances? How how do you get those people home? Well, you know there is a there is a huge logistics going on in the let's say behind the scene. This is what what usually we we as normal passengers we don't see that because there is a lot of um, diplomacy. There is a lot of uh, regulations and, and national and international laws involved. So what to do with those repatriation flights? Um, if available, governments still choose um, the, the scheduled flights if available. If this is no more available, they usually um, going to hire uh, work with two operators and airlines to do non-scheduled flights. In some circumstances, 
um, um, the government, they charter flights their own. And the last option is then um, flights um, operated by the military, what we saw basically um, when um, when passengers or, or expatriates were uh, um, scheduled and flight out of Wuhan, right? Um, and the, 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 why is that? I mean, you, you need to see that basically um, all the capacity is gone. There are no more um, regular bookings or regular ways to fly. You need to, um, and then now we are looking behind the scene, right? So you need to um, have to schedule new flight plans. You have to go through all the approval. This are interna- is an international process. Um, you have to apply permits. You have to find crews um, and aircrafts, um, crews who are w- willing to fly the aircraft, right? It's not necessarily that that um, this is a, a, a easy easy trip. And then the most important is the passengers are all over the place. How are you getting them to the airport, um, to which airport? So th- this is a huge um, logistical um, undertaking here. And this just the, the whole logistics is really... Uh, uh, mind-boggling at the moment. Uh, how about in terms of cost? Obviously, there, 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 there's, um, there are huge costs involved in bringing people back. Uh, uh, do individual travellers have uh, travel insurance, which may uh, cover some of that? How does it work? Yeah, okay. So that's uh, you, you bring up this point. This is very, very interesting and um, very... Um, yeah, this is, uh, there are a lot of uh, possibilities for governments at the moment, but the bad news for governments is most of the time um, they pay from taxpayers' money. So this is what, at the end, what, what happens. But until then, there are lots of um, different ways. So basically, of course, um, passengers in the past have been asked to pay an extra fee, pay an extra fare, and pay for certain um, parts of the operation. However, the, as I mentioned, with the huge logistics, the, the governments are um, helping and, and having emergency funding stand by for those situations. So think about we had this situation um, just a few months ago when Thomas Cook were, um, went bankrupt. Oh, yeah. So all these stranded um, passengers had to be back home. Um, basically, for there, um, there are insurances um, on one hand, and the government is backing this up um, uh, as well. So some of the costs especially if you go through Europe um, to Hong Kong, may be, may be refunded by the airlines because the airlines are asked by law to do so. Um, it can be that the, that the individual traveler or the government for all the travelers is going to negotiate with the travel insurance um, to, to pay back certain costs. The thing is with all these travel advisories, um, um, the, the travel insurances can sometimes step back, right? They say, okay, this is not covered. Um, However, governments have other options. What we saw around the world is like um, vouchers um, to get the cost back stipends or tax relief for for those travelers who paid extra extra amount of money, um, which were extraordinary costs for them. So you see there is a wide range until it comes really to to the, the travel insurance or to the own pocket of the passenger. Okay. Well, Marcus Sugar, Associate Professor in the School of Hotel and Tourism Management at the Polytechnic University. Many thanks for, for joining us this morning, Professor Shukert. Much obliged. Uh, Michael uh, says uh, on our Facebook page, really excellent commentary by your guests this morning. She should be invited with people like Joel speaking now by the government to discuss food supplies. Yes, there are 15-day strategic stores for some stocks. 
but these are by importers and distributors. If retailers and restaurants don't pay as they have poor business, then no cash gets to the importers and distributors. Yes, we do rely also on China. Who is monitoring that? There is much to discuss. Please invite Welcome and Parking Shop directors on the radio. That observation from Michael. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Thanks to our producer, uh, Noreen Mir, and uh, researcher, uh, Michelle Chan. The weather forecast before we go, cloudy today with a couple of light rain patches and a maximum temperature of about 22 degrees. The outlook, cloudy and windy in the next couple of days and then heavy showers and thunderstorms on Sunday and on Monday. 20 degrees at the moment and the relative humidity up at 80%. Flooding leads to problems much worse than traffic jams. It can turn into a nightmare in serious situations. Under all circumstances, watercourses must not be blocked or altered. No inappropriate landfilling should be carried out. Private landowners are responsible for regular drainage inspection and maintenance. Public cooperation is needed to cut flood risk. Life and property are at stake. Call the drainage hotline on 2300-1110 to report problems. 32, the news with Samantha Butler. A former hospital authority official says beauty parlours should close for 14 days to curb the spread of the coronavirus. The government extended its closure order of entertainment venues yesterday to also include karaoke bars, nightclubs and mahjong parlours. Clubhouses, beauty and massage parlours were exempt. But Dr Derek Au says with the recent surge in overseas arrivals, it's a critical time to ensure no local outbreaks of COVID-19. The head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, says he's deeply concerned about the rapid rise in the number of cases of coronavirus around the world. He said confirmed cases worldwide would reach a million in the coming days. And the United States Defense Secretary Mark Esper says a number of warships have been deployed to the Caribbean as part of a major new operation to counter drug trafficking from Venezuela. Last week, the U.S. accused the Venezuelan president and more than 12 current and former officials of involvement in smuggling cocaine. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Thanks, Sam. And a very good morning to you. Uh, James Ross in on the morning brew for Phil this week and next. Ready with a whole pile of music and a whole pile of guests as well. Tell you more in a moment.